Just two questions for you. Uh, How do you feel about tests? And how do you feel about jury duty? Now, I know it's not going to take a whole lot of soul searching to answer those two. You don't like them. You don't care for them. Okay, is that you? That's me? That's us? Okay, we're done. You ready to close in prayer? That wraps it up. Now, I, I, I form those as just two questions to help us kind of pull out this text. There's, there's really there's two things going on here. There are a series of tests, whether we like them or not, in the first five verses. And then there's, there's some jury duty that's going on. That's verses 6 through 12, because that's in essence what John invites us into. So here are the questions again. How do you feel about tests? Well... Again and again, there have been these tests. That they're tests to discern if we have some measure of assurance that we are genuinely followers. If we're truly Christians, there have been these tests that the Apostle John has brought out. And a way to summarize those tests are the moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. The moral test, do you, do you follow the ways, the law of God? The, the social test, do you love God's people? And then there's the doctrinal test. What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is, is the Christ, the Messiah, the actual Son of God in flesh? Another way of putting it is, do you walk in love? Do you walk in the light? And do you walk in the truth? Now, all of those tests, he's been enumerating them, explaining them, illustrating them, unpacking them throughout this letter. And here in the last chapter, in these opening five verses, he hits on every single one of them. What, what, what's verse 1? Do you, do you love the others who have been made children of God like you? Right? Oh, and by the way, verse 2, do you keep His commands? Verse 3, do you walk in His ways? And then lastly, verse 5, actually verse 5 and verse 1, do you believe in Jesus? Now, now, now of course, this word believe here is not simply a, you know, an intellectual assent. It, it's more. In, in the original language, it conveys a, a great deal more than that. It's actually a word that speaks of uh, a measure of persuaded confidence that you would actually trust, that you would transfer trust over to Jesus to be for you what only He can be, a Savior, the Son of God, the Christ. And that the fact that He came and He lived a life, do you trust, do you believe in Christ? Not only that He came, but that actually, He actually lived a perfect life And he died, not an accidental death, but an intentional, sacrificial death for a reason. Because Jesus didn't come just to live as a moral example, but actually to serve as one who would pardon, who would live and die in our place. A payment for our sins. How do you become, because he says here he's talking about children of God, how do you become a child of God? It's not assumed, it shouldn't be assumed, that everyone is a child of God just by birth. How do you become a child of God? Well, from the human vantage point, the human side, it's through repentance, turning, and faith. But from the God side of things, it's through this thing we, called re, we call rebirth. Rebirth. That's why verse 1, what does it say there? Those who have been born of God. That's different than the natural. We're talking not simply of a physical birth. Everyone has that to come into the world, but actually a a spiritual birth, a rebirth. There's a reason that when John John records this of Jesus in John 3, what must a man do to see the kingdom of God? He must be born again. 
a spiritual awakening and birth. It's the same reason that in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that we must be made alive. With rebirth, we're given something. We're given a new heart. We're given a new family. We're given, we're given new desires, a new life. You're adopted into the family of God. We had that beautiful picture this morning at our congregation. We had a baptism for a young boy who was adopted. It's a glorious picture. It's, it's a picture of how God's love for us is not conditional. It's covenantal. It's by grace that we're adopted, forgiven, cleansed, brought in. And that by grace alone, an unmerited favor. It's not like he saw us and said, oh, that's really good. I like that. Oh, you're performing well. Really appreciate that behavior. I think I'm going to adopt you into the family. No. He said, he said his love on us. Now, you might be asking the question, then why, why would he remind us and hammer in upon the commandments, right? Why does, he say, why, does it, why does that necessitate it here? Why is that mentioned as part of the equation? Good question. But let's be clear about the order and the relationship between all of these things. As Tim Keller often highlights, the difference of biblical Christianity from other religions, all other religions, whether it's a dogma, a moral code, some other you know, form of living, it is, it is this, I obey, therefore, whatever those rules are, therefore I'm accepted by God, or God's plural, the deities, right? But biblical Christianity puts that in the inverse. In Christ, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm loved, therefore I will love. Why do you love God? Because he first loved me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Another way of putting this is that we, we go and we love and obey not for the love of God, but from the love of God. Does that make sense? And, and that love has a way of transforming us from the inside out. James K.A. Smith, who is a philosopher and theologian, he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. Because it's, really, it's, it's not really what you think or what you assume or, or part of you. There's, there's a, a bigger piece of who we are that is formed out of what we want, what we desire, what we love. He writes, James K.A. Smith, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your, your longings. And so I'm going to ask you, what is it that you want? Let me just ask you right now, check, check them. What are your loves? Because 1 John back in chapter 2 says this, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, then what happens when the love of God is in, in us? Changes our hearts, changes our desires. Doesn't make doesn't mean that they're now perfect and conformed and there's still a war going on, but it's there. It begins. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I don't know if you caught this, but 
Look, look with me, if you would, at verse 3. For This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Is that your view? By the way, he's not saying, John's not saying, the, the law of God, the commands of God is, is easy. He's just saying that when you become adopted and you experience the love of God, then you have a new motivation and you have a new power. And he plants within us uh, new, new desires. He gives us the strength to walk in it. God's law is good. It's good for us, but it's also for His glory. Have you ever thought about that? If it was, by the way, if, it was, if, if God's law, God's law actually functions, His commandments are an outworking of His very character. Have you ever thought about this? You know, God didn't wake up one day and say, hey, listen, you want to be my people, I want you to recycle glass on Tuesday. I, I want you to paint your house purple, only on the backside. I want you to sing only songs in the key of you fill in the blank. I want you to groom your neighbor's cat. Yeah. And I, oh, the only thing that you can eat, dietarily speaking, is fish. Now some of you, most of us, would be without hope on those last two. And maybe some of you like cats. I don't. But... God didn't say to do any of those things. Have you ever thought about that? Because all of those, in case you didn't pick up, are arbitrary. No, God says, I want you to have honesty and integrity. Why? Because God is true. And God says, I want you to be generous because that's what God is. And I want you to forgive people. Yes, again, forgive people. Why? Because that's his very character. It's not arbitrary. And it's good for us. And I remember as a young man in college trying to, to grasp my relationship with the commandments of God. And the guy who was, who, was, who was leading our group, we knew him well. He and his wife would have us over to their house for, for meals. And I remember Ken, he, he drew for us on, on an overhead projector. Kids, you don't know what that is, but it's... it's you know, he's drawing this diagram that's up on the screen behind us. And I distinctly remember him describing his home. We all knew his home. We knew where he lived. And he began to draw a fence. It was the fence that it was his backyard. And he says, why do I have that fence there? He had small children. And he said, the reason I have that small fence is not because I want to inhibit my children. I don't care about my children. I want to restrict their freedom. I actually want them to enjoy all of the backyard. But I also know that if they go way into the backyard... And I remember him drawing the stream. He's like, they may fall in that stream and drown. And if they go on that side of the fence, they might get bitten by the neighbor's dog. And I know if they walk out into the front yard, well, we all knew because their house was like right over the crest of a, of a hill on a busy street. And if they go off that other side, there's snakes there in the rocks, copperheads. Why do you think God invites us to keep his commandments? It, it, it's because he wants us to experience freedom. Not, not, not suppress and inhibit that. Because if you think that jumping over the fence and crawling down to that creek is fun, you might be right for a time. Until you become a slave to whatever it is that you are drinking and enjoying in that stream. God knows. Why is it that, how is it that the God... It's like when we understand God as a loving parent, we want to be like, we want to follow Him. We want to listen to Him. 
Because we know that He's got my best interest in mind. He loves me. He desires me. He's been good to me. And so often we say, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to dwell here. This is, well, actually, it sounds more like this. I'm going to return here. This is the best place, right? Let's move on. How do you feel about jury duty? The, the first five verses, there's three tests. The last verses here are three witnesses. Because John's, it's in essence like he's inviting us into a courtroom. There's no denying it, just the language of it. He talks about here multiple times, testify, testimony. The jury is, is, is established to, to discern the fact. Is, is it in fact true that Jesus is the Son of God, worthy of our trust, the only way to be reconciled to a holy God? Verse 9, let's look at our text here. Verse 9, what does he say? If we receive the testimony of men, and naturally you do, right? I mean, he's saying here, that's all fine and well, but God's testimony is even greater, he says. Now, why would that be? You know, in the ancient Near Eastern world, you couldn't have someone brought up on charges, and you couldn't be pressing forward in that, except on the basis of what? Two witnesses, and he's saying, well, let's just take it, let's just take it even further. Because I don't have two witnesses, I have three. And what are the witnesses? What are the three witnesses? Well, let's look at our text. Verse 7. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Thank you for being honest. No, it does not make sense. I don't know what it means either. A lot of, a lot of ink has been spilt trying to, to discern what uh, John might mean here. The best that I can come up with is that the water is referring to his entry into the world, his birth, that he took on flesh. Some didn't believe that. They believed it was a figment. It wasn't, couldn't be that way. And that's part of the heresy that he's trying to address. And so he did come, though. He's saying that's a testimony that he was, he was living. He was a God-man, human, taking on flesh, living amongst us. But then there's the blood. That must be pointing to the cross. That's another witness. These are all personified. What's the water say? What's the blood say? The blood says, yes. He, he, he died a cruel death. And this, as I mentioned earlier, for a reason. But then there's this, this other witness, this third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. It was Jesus who promised that he would send the Spirit. It would come as a helper, John 15 tells us. And that his main job was to be bearing witness to him. That's what we experience. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know these things are true? There are those exter external testi testimonies that we deduce and discern, but then there's that inward testimony, the Spirit of God that says, even if I, even if I tried to run away from this, this is true. He's got me. Now, the internal witness comes and says, Christ is who he says he is. And then it says this, we, the scriptures testify that because of that spirit of truth dwelling in us, we then cry out, God, Abba, Father. That, that, that was a revolutionary concept, by the way. In fact, 
there's no, hardly any other religions that really conceive of God or embrace God under that title and identification. I mean, just to give you a, a small for instance, Islam, you would never call God your father. That would be erroneous, if not altogether evil. But when the disciples come to Jesus, they say, how should we pray? And what does he say to them? He says, teach us how to pray. He says, this is how you pray. And before I tell you how to pray, I want you to know who you're praying to. Our Father. We're going to say it in a moment. That's a big deal. That shapes our identity. That's who we belong to. That's, that forms our, our very family and identity. So why don't we just run to Him as our Father with His, his loving embrace opened up? I mean, that's the invitation, right? Everyone, verse 1, who believes that Jesus is the Christ. One of the reasons we don't like the testimony of Scripture, if we're very honest, there's times when we, we resist the testimony of the, the water and the blood and even the Spirit. And that's because the Word of God tells us that we're wrong. We're sinful, we're weak, we're needy, that we ourselves, apart from Jesus, can't fix ourselves, that apart from Jesus, we don't have life. I didn't say that. John just said that in verse 12. And we don't like that. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, How can I have eternal life? How can I inherit the kingdom? Well, Jesus revealed something and conveyed it to him. And it challenges him and us to this very day. That assumption that Christianity is something we do. As if it were a moral code. It is not. In fact, if we continue under any such notion and not understand him as a, a gracious father, then it's an insult to the finality of Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus paid the, the full penalty. It's one of the, it, it, and yet it's still it's one of those lies, the subtle lies of the enemy who comes to us and says, you must prove yourself. Oh, and by the way, you have failed. God can't love you. You don't call him your father. Or we believe so often as our culture does, that lingers when we don't understand God as our gracious father and we as needy children. We assume, hear me on this one, and tell me if it's not true in our culture in our day and age. We assume that the problem is out there and the solution is in here. When in reality, the problem is in here and the solution is out there. Namely, in the person and work of Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus as your brother and God as your father? Personally, deeply, intimately. Do you love him? You can this very day. Turn from your sin, believing by faith in the finished work, the finished work of Jesus once and for all. Let me just try to recap this, okay? Just, just to the, the 12 verses we covered, and I'm going to close here. We can have our identity changed if we're born of God by faith, right? That's verse 1. And we can have our activity changed, verse 2 and 3, keeping his commandments, 
because of our identity belonging to the Father. And then we can finally have our destiny changed, verse 12, which is eternal life because of our identity under God, our Father, and we as His children. Is this good news? I know it's probably not new news to you, but I believe it's good news. 